Please stand now for the scripture reading for today. It is found in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does this teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what it, this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. In recent weeks, we've been seeing the Gospel of Matthew and the accounts that are recorded there, the many miracles that were performed by Jesus at the outset of his earthly ministry, many of which focused on healing the sick from their afflictions and restoring health to the, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame, and others. And as we continue into the ninth chapter of Matthew, the author of this gospel, um, we're going to see him recount his call to follow Jesus. And in this, we're going to see how the miracles of healing that we've been looking at are but a precursor to the greater purpose that Christ had in coming, and that is to bring salvation to sinners. As we see the call of Matthew, we're going to see some very different responses. We'll look at that, how Matthew himself responded, and then, of course, we'll see how the Pharisees responded to this as well. We're going to approach this passage one scene at a time as the drama unfolds. First, we'll look at the calling of Matthew. Secondly, the complaint of the Pharisees. And thirdly, the contrasts that Christ provides as a response. So let's look first at the calling, the calling of Matthew in verse 9. So Jesus has moved on from having just healed a paralytic, someone who could not walk. This person was brought to him on a stretcher by your friends. You'll remember that dramatic episode that we looked at last week. And Mark reveals that passing on from that spot meant that he went back beside the sea. And once again, a crowd was gathering around Jesus to hear him teach. But the gospel writers are not focused on the crowds. They're not even focused on what Christ was teaching them. Instead, they want us to witness what the Pharisees counted as scandalous in what we ought to count as marvelous, and that is the calling of a tax collector to be his disciple. We read in verse 9, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. 
and he rose and followed him. Matthew spends only one verse on how he came to be a follower of Jesus. But this brief account is a wonderful insight into the ministry of Christ. To understand why, we we must first understand a little bit about what it meant to be a tax collector in first century Israel. Now, to be a tax collector in our own uh, time and place is maybe uh, not the most popular of professions, but it was far worse in Israel at this time. Tax collectors were universally despised and hated. They collected taxes for the imperial Romans. These are the colonizers, the, the conquerors of their land. And now while technically this specific area that that Matthew was a tax collector in, this would have been under a Jewish tetrarch, which uh, was a native, native Jewish official that was appointed by the Romans to govern the area. That did not make Matthew any more likable. They did not make his fellow tax collectors any more popular. They were really, they were merely an underling of an underling. They were collecting taxes for the support of their oppressors, and they were counted as traitors. You have to remember that this is a theocracy. And so this has social, political, national, patriotic, if you want to call it that, and of course, religious implications. They were traitors to their faith and to their people. They worked on the Sabbath. They constantly interacted with the Gentiles, and so they were unclean. Tax collectors were banned from the synagogue. These positions were typically given to the highest bidder. You would bid for these positions because the tax collector had the ability to overcharge people on their duties and taxes and everything else, and they would keep the difference. They were extortioners. Tax collectors were thieves. We see this well-earned reputation at play in Scripture. When tax collectors came to John the Baptist, we read in Luke 3.12, tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. You'll recall that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he all but admitted his extortion when He encountered Christ. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, he was was sincere in this. This is a wonderful example of a changed heart, a changed life under the power of the gospel. But this isn't the sort of thing that you say if you have not actually defrauded somebody. To be a tax collector was to defraud people. This is why tax collector and sinner are often paired together. They were fairly synonymous. Listen to how Jesus made a point back in Matthew 5, 6, talking about how how we need to love others, even our enemies. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The point of that is pretty clear. Even the tax collectors do that. Even these, you know, not so great people manage to do that much of loving those who love them. You need to be uh, loving beyond what even the tax collectors are able to pull off. Matthew 18, in dealing with church discipline, 
talking of a professing believer who refuses to repent after one person and then two people go to him. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Point there, once again, is clear. If, if someone who has brought doubt upon their profession of faith because they are refusing to repent of sin, treat them like a tax collector, which again, they're, they're outside of the religious community. When his enemies wanted to accuse Christ, they called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Of all the things that they wanted to drum up uh, angst and, and animosity towards Jesus, they said, that guy's friends with sinners and tax collectors. A tax collector was someone to be avoided. They were looked down upon as the lowest of the low, not really that unlike a leper. They were just not uh, physically afflicted, but they were uh, someone to be avoided in society as much as possible. And yet we see here Jesus call out to a man named Matthew, also known as Levi, by the way, in the other Gospels. Very common to have multiple names, particularly a Jewish and a Greek. Calls out to a man named Matthew sitting in his tax booth and says to him, follow me. And he does. Perhaps out of humility, Matthew does not elaborate on this. We just know that he followed him. Luke, however, adds, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew drops everything and goes after Jesus. Not unlike, you recall, when, when the other followers of Jesus were called, the fishermen who dropped their nets that they were mending on the shore and just left to follow Jesus. Matthew does the same. And, and although it is without the respectability of being a fisherman, he was nevertheless in a very lucrative career field. And he dropped it, and he left his tax booth, and he never came back. And he followed Jesus. And we can, we can speculate on the exposure that Matthew had to Jesus and his teaching. And many commentators do, many sermons do. The simple fact is we do not know. We don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us if Matthew saw Jesus prior to this, if he had witnessed a miracle, if he had heard him teach, or maybe he just got secondhand reports from those who came to his tax booth. And he heard of these things. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus said, follow me, and he did immediately. This was not a request this was not a suggestion for him to consider. This was a command for him to obey. And obey it, Matthew did. Whatever else he already knew and understood about Jesus, he clearly recognized the authority of the Messiah, and he was drawn to him in a powerful way. And no doubt Matthew would have been surprised by this turn of events. Think of it from the perspective of Matthew. Someone who is considered unclean and unwanted being approached by a popular teacher and a miracle worker to become his follower. Jesus took one of the least respectable men and made him one of his disciples. And not just one of those many hundreds and thousands that would follow after Jesus hoping for a miracle. He made him one of the 12 apostles, his closest followers. Christ came for the least and for the lowest. Matthew was not under the false impression 
that Jesus was able to look past his flaws and see the real Matthew on the inside. Jesus did not see him, or rather did not see in him a, a goodness and a potential that everybody else missed. Everybody in Matthew's life never really understood him, but Jesus could see how great Matthew really was. There was not a soft, lovable center inside a hardened exterior. Matthew would have understood enough about himself to recognize that any blessings from God were completely unmerited favor. May we never become so conceited and so self-deceived as to fail to recognize that this is the same for each one of us. Jesus did not see in us some great thing that nobody else could see and decided, yep, I want that one. I want him. I want her. Our hearts are desperately wicked. All our righteousness was as filthy rags in the sight of God. In fact, if others knew us as well as Christ knows us, it would have been a shock and a scandal for Jesus to come and dine with us as well. So we do not boast in our salvation as if we deserved any such thing, nor do we look down upon others as if they are unworthy of receiving the same grace that we did. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what God did with us. This is what God did with Matthew here in our passage. Matthew had no cause to boast in himself or to congratulate Jesus on recognizing the potential in him. And neither do we. Our only boast is in the Lord. And we ought to give praise to God that he saw fit to save a wretch like you and like me. And while we ought to recognize the beauty of what has taken place here in Matthew 9, it will not surprise you to hear that the Pharisees felt differently about what has happened. Let's look secondly at the complaint that we see in verses 10 and 11. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We see in verse 10 that Jesus reclined at table in the house. Well, reclined at table, this is how they ate. He just means he shared a meal. They didn't have chairs and a, and a table high off the floor like we do. They would lay on their side. 
with their feet outstretched behind them and leaning on their left elbow or on a cushion. And so Da Vinci's The Last Supper is not at all an accurate depiction of how they would have shared a meal. I don't know why they're all on one side of the table anyways. It's kind of odd. That's not how it would have looked. They were actually laying down. They were reclining at table. That's how they would share a meal in this context. But you might be thinking, what house? What has happened between Matthew's calling and now? Now we're, we're, at, a, we're at a meal. We're at a house. Well, we learn from Luke that Levi, again, that's Matthew's other name, made him, that is Jesus, Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So what has happened is that Matthew, in his joy at becoming a follower of Christ, has not only put together a great feast for Jesus, but he has invited all of his seedy co-workers to come and meet Jesus. And what a beautiful picture this is. Matthew has no false impressions about his own worthiness to receive Christ. And therefore, he saw no reason not to invite all of his fellow miscreants to come and meet Jesus as well. You see how important it is to have a proper understanding of who you are, who you were prior to Christ saving you, and how that impacts how you reach out to others. Hang on to that attitude, Christian. We must remain, as one preacher characterized it, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Introduce your fellow sinners to Jesus. But of course, not everyone finds this to be such a wonderful sight. The Pharisees, they don't confront Jesus directly. Instead, they slink over to the disciples and they point out the flaws that they see in their master. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? To eat a meal with someone, even in our day, is, is a very intimate thing. There's a reason that on dates, couples go and they eat food together. There's a reason when you bring friends over to enjoy one of those company, you eat. It's a very intimate thing that's happening. And the Pharisees see this and they wonder, why is their teacher in such an intimate relational setting with tax collectors and sinners. They're shocked by this. They're outraged by this. This is a scandal. This is to be looked down upon. Why is Jesus eating with such unrighteous people? Why is he eating with worthless individuals? Don't you see how this looks? They ask his followers. There must be something wrong with Jesus too if this is the company that he keeps. They're always seeking to find fault with Jesus. And they latch on to this accusation that he is unrighteous because he spends his time with the unrighteous. They paint this as an endorsement of sin. This is coming from the Pharisees who went to great lengths not to associate with Gentiles, with the unclean, with anyone else that they regarded as failing to meet their very high standards. In fact, that's what the word Pharisee means. It means separated. They separated themselves. They, they kept themselves apart from the unrighteous. They counted themselves as being above 
others. They're far more righteous than all the sinful masses around them, and they made little effort to hide their disdain. Keep in mind, the Pharisees, they didn't just keep the Ten Commandments. They had something like 613 laws that they kept meticulously. Those that did not were less than them. They were less righteous than them. They were to be not only looked down upon, they were to be completely shunned, completely avoided. For them to to come into contact, to interact with them would make them unclean. That's how they sought to keep themselves holy. That's how they sought to obtain God's favor. That's how they sought their salvation. They sought it in themselves. They saw it in their works. They sought it in their ability to perform all these religious duties and and rituals and services to God. So they counted themselves above others. They looked with disdain on others. And this is why Jesus so often rebuked the Pharisees, and he did so so sharply. Remember, we've we've seen that in previous passages in Matthew. When when Jesus encounters a sinner in the gospel, you'll see there's often uh, a lot of compassion. There might be a very probing question, such as with the woman at the well, but he, he he doesn't go after them with the fierceness that he does with the Pharisees because while they were meticulous in their law keeping, they were unconcerned with matters of the heart. They were hypocrites, and and Jesus reserved his most scorching attacks, if you want to call them that, against hypocrisy, particularly religious hypocrisy. He He would point it out. He would condemn it, and he condemned them with seven woes in Matthew 23. One of those woes was this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What a a picture. You've got these tombs. This is how they would bury their dead. So they would put the body inside. They would would seal it with a big rock. And and sometimes people would take care of them. Not unlike we we put flowers on graves. We want want the, the, the groundskeeper to take good care of the cemetery out of respect for the dead. They would whitewash the outside of the tombs. And it would appear quite beautiful. But inside was a different story. Inside was simply full of dead people's bones. And all the uncleanness that goes with the process of placing a dead body in a sealed tomb. The Pharisees looked great on the outside. They made sure that they looked great on the outside. And other people would see them as these these religious monuments and pillars. And they wanted people to see them as such. But inside, they were dead in sin. And this is us when we count ourselves as being deserving of all the grace that we have seen. When we, when we want others to see us as, as very good, as very religious, as, as very honorable, yet inside, if we are unconcerned with how we are actually living, how our heart is towards God and towards others, or when we look upon others as being unworthy of receiving God's grace, 
If we look at ourselves and we think, well, yes, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would come to save someone as nice as me. But we'd rather not be associated with certain other people who want to become Christians or, or are interested in Christianity or are interested in relationship with us. Well, we are but whitewashed tombs, forgetting that we were dead in our trespasses and sins before we were made alive in Christ Jesus. Do we dare to see others as being too far gone for Jesus to save? Looking at a group of people and saying, it can't happen. There's no point in trying to bring them the gospel. Are we content to look with disdain on others as being a political or cultural or societal enemies rather than earnestly pray for and seek their salvation? Are we unwilling to enter into relationships with unbelievers on the pretense of keeping ourselves unstained by the world? Now, by that, I do not mean that we ought not take steps to keep ourselves from sin. But we have to recognize that some, you know, use the line that Christ ate with tax collectors and sinners as a means to open the door for Christians to participate in all sorts of immoral things, enter into immoral places to, to do things with people in places they ought not go. And they'll say, well, Christ ate with tax collectors and sinners, so I can go and, and do this. I can go and be here. And of course, that is not the lesson to take from this passage. Jesus did not eat with tax collectors and sinners as an endorsement or a participation in their sin as some twist this passage to claim today. He is eating with them. He's not off extorting people with them. There's a pretty big difference, participating in what was sinful and then associating with those who do sinful things. So we dare not take a call to compassion as a license to sin. However, we must take Jesus' example for what it is, a call to bring the gospel to those who need it most. We ought to know and be known by people who are outside of the Christian faith. We ought to cultivate and develop relationships with non-Christian co-workers and neighbors and family members and all the rest that might be introduced to our circle of influence by God. It is ultimately not a great thing to only have Christian friends and to only know Christian people and only go to Christian places does not mean for a moment that we enter into places that Christians ought not go or that we join people in activities that Christians ought not do. Yes, we are to be set apart in that sense, but at the same time, we must be willing to know and be known by those who need the gospel, and that means we must know and be known by sinners. Sinners like us who have yet to be saved by Jesus. We need to bring the gospel to those who need it most. So we've seen the complaint of the Pharisees pointing out and, and being upset that Jesus is doing just that. Let's look now at how Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their suggestion that Jesus ought not associate with the likes of tax collectors and sinners. We're going to look thirdly at these contrasts. The Pharisees have become aware of this great feast. They've become aware of the guest list. 
and they have grumbled about it to the disciples. This grumbling makes its way back to Jesus. And his response contains three contrasts which make his mission abundantly clear. Let's look at verses 12 to 13. But when he heard it, that is Jesus, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Three contrasts to make his point. The well and the sick. Mercy and sacrifice. Righteous and sinners. First, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Nobody sends for an ambulance when they are feeling fine, when everything's going really good. No, it's those who are sick and those who know they are sick that are in need of medical help, that seek out a doctor. The point is clear. Jesus, the great physician, came for the express purpose of healing the sick. And as we have seen in recent weeks and passages, this has included the literally, physically ill whom he has healed. But in a larger sense, and in this context, he is speaking of spiritual sickness. Those who have a spiritually fatal condition, if left uncorrected, they will die in their sins. The contrast between the well and the sick makes plain that the Pharisees should not be surprised to find Jesus associating with lowly sinners, but instead, this is what they should expect him to be doing. Can you picture a doctor who shouts, yuck, what are you doing here? Every time a sick person comes into his office, it's not a very good doctor. We would expect a doctor to associate with the sick. So too should the Savior associate with the sinner. Jesus' response continues, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means is a very common rabbinic saying. The rabbi would say this to his followers to, to go and learn what this means. He would, he would direct their attention to a part of scripture and call them to study it deeply. This quotation comes from Hosea 6.6, 6, which of course the Pharisees, being very meticulous, very studious, would have immediately recognized. It would have been immediately familiar with this passage. In Hosea's day, the religious observances were being followed, but the heart of the people was far from God. These were but empty rituals. And as the prophet wrote in Hosea 4.1, there was no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. So Jesus is quoting a rebuke of empty religious observances. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, God says there. Now, this is a Hebrew way of speaking. It does not mean that God did not want sacrifices to be made. After all, God is the one who prescribed the sacrifices. It means 
that God desires mercy above sacrifice. He has no desire to have sacrifice without mercy. He is so much more concerned with mercy in as if he is completely unconcerned with sacrifice when the two are compared. Jesus said something similar. Remember, if you do not hate mother and father, you have no business following them. He doesn't want you to hate your parents or to honor your mother and father. But so much more so is your love and concern for Jesus to be that by comparison is this, if you have no interest, no desire, no love for anything else, God has no interest in empty rituals towards him while our hearts are far from our fellow man. 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This contrast rebukes the Pharisees for their empty religion and their disdain of their fellow sinners. It it warns us as well to not have that heart attitude of, of merely outward religious services but inside not having a love for others. And then in order to remove all the possibility of misunderstanding his point, Jesus provides a final contrast. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This too is clearly a rebuke of the Pharisees. Not that they were righteous, but they saw themselves that way. They counted themselves as righteous, and so they were not in need of salvation, and simultaneously they counted others as unrighteous and unworthy of salvation. Jesus makes that very point in the parable he told of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You remember this from Luke 18? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Just pause there. What a description of the Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus hates this attitude, and so he tells this parable to expose it. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus isn't exactly pulling any punches here, is he? We see this Pharisee's prayer is just a a list of reasons that God should be grateful for the Pharisee and what a great job he is doing. Meanwhile, the tax collector who's convicted of his sin will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but simply pleads for mercy from God. 
This is the perfect picture of what we see happening in our passage. One saw himself as righteous. The other saw himself as need and mercy. It is the latter who is justified, while the former is left in his sins. And again, Christ is not saying that there are actually any who are righteous in this world and who are not in need of repentance. Scripture is clear that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all dead in our trespasses and sin. There are none righteous, no, not one. The Pharisees counted themselves as obtaining righteousness on their own through their own meticulous law-keeping and effort. Those who were not as scrupulous as they were were unworthy of the kingdom of God in their minds. They trusted in themselves and they treated others with contempt. But Jesus did not come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came specifically for the tax collector. He came specifically for the sinner. He came specifically for you and for me. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. There are lessons here for every one of us. All of us fit somewhere within this. If you are here and you have effectively convinced yourself that you are not in need of a savior because you can point to your own good works or you could point to many other people whose works are far worse than yours, you have to hear this lesson. You are a sinner separated from God There are none righteous in his sight. You will die in your sins. You will spend eternity in hell if you do not repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness. There are others who hear this and they think that they're unworthy to receive the free grace that is offered in Jesus. Well, they must hear too the lesson of this passage. Unworthy sinners are precisely whom Jesus Christ came for. Your sin does not disqualify you from salvation. Your sin is a prerequisite to salvation. In Romans 5, 6 to 8, we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We read in 1 Timothy 1.16, rather, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners are who Jesus came for. So your sin cannot prevent the gospel from applying to you if you will turn to Jesus to find grace and forgiveness for your sins. Now, if you're here and you're already amongst Christ's sheep, you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, there is a lesson here for us as well. For all who have been healed by the great physician, do not forget how he found you. Do not forget what he has done for you. I just read 1 Timothy 1.16. Let's look at the very next part of that passage. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me 
as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Timothy does not see himself as being above other sinners for whom Christ came into this world to save. He says he was the foremost sinner. Jesus only saved him as an example of his patience and his mercy, as an example to others that they might see in themselves the possibility of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ as well. And he responds in praise to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Christian, remember that you were once a great sinner and you were redeemed by a great Savior. Let that truth to cause you to never count someone else as unworthy of hearing the gospel or being unwelcome in our church or in our home or any other way to be kept out of the kingdom of God by our self-righteous attitude. Instead, rejoice and praise God for the display of patience, mercy, and grace that he has displayed to you. And, like Matthew did for his fellow tax collectors, seek opportunities to introduce Jesus Christ to your fellow sinners whenever possible. For he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let us see in our passage a reminder to bring the sick to the great physician. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the challenge that it brings to us. We thank you too for the comfort that it brings us. We thank you for the consistent reminder that we see that, that we did not earn our salvation, but we received it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And since we did not earn salvation, we have no reason to boast in our salvation, save from boasting in you. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to boast in you. Help us to, to give honor and glory and praise for what you have done. And to do so in a way that others see it and see that we do not, as Christians, see ourselves as having obtained by our own effort salvation. And therefore, we look down on others who are still in their sin or even act in surprise and shock and disbelief that this fallen world is, in fact, sinful. Rather, give us eyes of compassion. Give us hearts of, of patience and mercy. Give us a desire to pray for and seek the salvation of those around us, recognizing that we know that we are far worse than anyone else we've encountered. We understand all our thoughts. We understand all of our motives. We understand all of our actions that others are unaware of. And so we know we cannot deny, Lord, that there was nothing good in us to merit the blessings that we received at your hand. And so there's nothing that prevents those blessings from being shared with others as you have called us to do. Help us to be faithful in the task that you have given us, which is merely to proclaim the gospel and to trust you for doing your perfect, effectual calling on the hearts of those whom you choose to bring to a knowledge and salvation of Jesus Christ, your Son. Pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.